It's infrastructure week. For real, for real this time. Matt Gates is in super hot water. And the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed George Floyd, starts this week. Hey, girls and guys, I'm Brandy with an eye, and this is Did You Hear the News? Well, 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 Joe's back at it again, asking for trillions of dollars, and the Republicans are sick as usual. This week, President Biden rolled out his $2.25 trillion American jobs plan. Now, from my understanding, this is only part one of his infrastructure bill, which is A sweeping bill that's supposed to touch on a whole lot of things. $2.25 trillion. And this is the high-level breakdown. So $620 billion on how we move. That's infrastructure. $650 billion on how we live at home. That's expanding broadband, safe water, housing, $400 $400 billion on how we care, which is the care economy, and $580 billion on how we make and create. That's R&D and manufacturing. So when you get to the nitty-gritty of the bill, as far as transportation goes, it includes money for modernizing roads, highways, and bridges, road safety, public transit. We're really behind as a nation as far as public transit goes, especially when you think about like high speed trains and stuff in other places. So of course they have money for Amtrak and freight rail services, money for electric vehicles. As we've seen, a lot of companies are moving towards that. I think GM has announced by like 2035 or something like that they plan to have like a whole fleet of electric vehicles so that's important money for airports and ports uh, money for neighborhoods that are have been historically excluded from transportation investments and then there's going to be money for new projects and then money for infrastructure resilience with a special emphasis on most vulnerable areas As far as water goes, there's going to be money towards um, eliminating lead pipes, uh, which is good because Flint, like, where are we at on Flint? Uh, Hopefully, some of the money in this plan can go to cleaning up their water. Uh, There's going to be loans and grants to help modernize the water systems around the country and also monitoring and fixing substances in drinking water. Then for broadband, I I didn't know like still one third of the U.S. doesn't have access to broadband. Like, can you imagine not being able to like get internet at your home? That's wow. So they're going to have money to build out an infrastructure for 100% coverage and allocate some money specifically to tribal lands, which is great. 
And then they would also want to reduce the prices of broadband, which once again, anytime that prices can be reduced, I'm all for it. Uh, as far as the power infrastructure, they're also going to work towards plugging old wells, cleaning up abandoned mines, revamping former industrial and energy sites, and creation of a civilian climate corp. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, as far as education and housing, they want to put money into public housing and infrastructure, upgrading buildings upgrading and building public schools 12 billion for community college infrastructure and then money also for upgrading child care facilities and they also want to make sure that that child tax that families are getting now that was a part of the COVID relief plan will become a permanent fixture. So that's included as well. They also want to modernize veteran affairs hospitals, which thank God, I think we've all heard about the horror stories at the VA. So that'd be great. And they also want to put money towards um, those federal buildings. And then they want to put money towards home community care for elderly and disabled individuals. And then for research and development, they want to put money into the National Science Foundation, uh, innovation and job creation, research and development. They want to give money to historically black college and universities and minority serving institutions. And then they also want to develop some climate research and development. So honestly, I think that's good. I mean, not even to mention they're still manufacturing and labor money they want to put into manufacturing for semiconductors and creating jobs and all of that stuff. So honestly, truly, I say run run up the tab, Joe. Run up the tab. Now, here's where, as you could guess, Republicans are pushing back. And that's not to say Democrats aren't pushing back. I've heard that... You know, the AOCs of the Democratic Party are saying that this isn't enough. And I'd love to hear what else they want to see. But the Republicans are not excited about the part of this bill in which President Biden, in an effort to pay this off, because this is a plan that's supposed to span over eight years, and be paid for over 15. And the idea would be that we would raise taxes. Now, when the former president came into office, corporate taxes were 35% on corporations, not you sitting at the house, especially not you making under $400,000. This is for corporations. So the corporate tax was 35%. Well, if you recall, or I've told you a hundred thousand times, the former president and the Republicans, through reconciliation, passed a tax bill that provided those corporations with a tax cut. So at that point, the corporate tax went from 35% to 21%. That's a big chunk. That's 14% difference. It's a delta. Um, so what President Biden wants to do is kind of bring that back to like the middle, right? So some people were saying, well, bring it up to 25. That's even better. But he's like, no, let's take it to 28. So 
it's still cheaper than when President Obama and Joe Biden were in office, but it's going to be higher than the past four years, which, yes, we need to do. Like, corporations need to pay a fair amount of taxes. Corporations need to pay taxes in general. You know, I heard this week, and I had to chuckle. I couldn't do anything but chuckle that Zoom, once again, profiting off the pandemic, exploded their revenue by like hundreds of percentage points and didn't pay taxes on the profits. Like, isn't that wild? Like, everybody was using Zoom. You had never heard of Zoom, but you were on Zoom. You were probably Zooming with your friends. Y'all were having Zoom brunch. You were using it for work, pulling out your hair because your coworkers wanted you to be on camera all the time. And they didn't pay taxes? Like, Ladies people pay taxes. I don't I don't get the Republicans. They want to say, oh, well, you're borrowing and our children are going to have to pay for it and small government. We don't need government anything. But it's like, why am I paying taxes if I can't depend on the government to actually do something that's going to benefit me? Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, why am I paying taxes if you can't even keep your government properties and infrastructure together like that's what you guys are supposed to do do it it's annoying but anyways i know there's going to be a lot of contention because (laughs) the republicans say they want infrastructure everyone says they want infrastructure but they're going to find a way to complain about something and make bad faith arguments mitch mcconnell has already said that it's a trojan horse for a lot of liberal and left-leaning ideas. I mean, these people never give you any type of suggestions that would help make a law better. They just want to tell you why the law's terrible. Even when half of, over half of the nation is in on it. Like, they're like, no, we don't. Here's the thing. They can't raise taxes on corporations because they know that's where that money comes from. But you didn't hear from me. Anyway, so my understanding is that they are looking to have a end date or a completion date for this bill of July 4th. Right in time for some good old-fashioned American freedom celebration. So we'll see how this goes. Now, the interesting thing is reconciliation can be used twice a year, if I'm not mistaken. And so this can't actually be passed without Republicans, if I read correctly. So this actually can go through reconciliation. However, you have the Joe Manchins of Democrats who are like, I just, I gotta have Republicans on board. But it's like, if Joe Manchin also believes that he doesn't want to pass infrastructure without it also being paid for, and the only way to pay for it is to tax corporations more, and Republicans are like, heck no, we're not doing that, then what does he expect? What does he expect? I don't, at this point in time, expect the Republicans to support anything that's helpful. I don't expect them to do that. Those 10 that are moderates who like to pretend that 
you know, they want to be heard and they want to be included. I don't expect them to do anything. Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, I'm talking to you. Lisa Murkowski, I'm talking to you. So we'll see how that goes. Good luck to them. Joe is going big. And it's what a lot of people want. It's what a lot of people ask for. And I think he's definitely trying to meet the need. This is the first time in many years that the Democrats have held every part of Congress. That's the presidency, the House, and the Senate. So I think he knows while he's in these first two years, he has to go big. But you have senators who still have a few years under their belt who feel like they're good either way. So they don't really care. So we're going to watch this process. I have a feeling it's going to get ugly, but who knows? Another thing that I'm really happy to keep an eye out on because y'all know this is a very near and dear subject to my heart student loan forgiveness. So an article came out recently, maybe today, that says that President Biden has asked his education secretary to look into the legal actions he can take on student loan forgiveness. Now, if you recall, a few episodes back, I had a hissy fit because he said at a town hall with CNN that he was absolutely not going to forgive $50,000 in student loan using the excuse that he doesn't think he has the authority. But Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Chuck Schumer have stayed pressing him on this and I'm really glad I'm really thankful they did side note they put out a video this week and Elizabeth Warren said that when she went to state college she paid $50 a semester if I'm not mistaken and I dropped a tear I dropped a tear because I can't even imagine what it would feel like to get a degree for $400 I couldn't imagine it um, so I'm, I'm really grateful that they've stayed on him, not just them, you know, a lot of other progressive Democrats in the House and the Senate have stayed on him from that. So my understanding is that, um, the education secretary, that's Miguel Cardona and, um, Ron Klain mentioned that, you know, give them a few weeks still look into it and have a proposal on Joe's desk. And, you know, I guess he wants to mull about what legal challenges could possibly go his way if he does it as an executive order and not a law. But they are government loans and they run the government. Get them, get them, get, get rid of them. I'm sick of them. Get rid of them. At this point, a lot of people have just not even factored in paying off the rest of those loans. Like, you should have never gave us this deferment during COVID because now we can see a life without these student loans and we're not trying to go back. We're just not trying to go back. Speaking of going back, I know, I know, I know a lot of people want to get back to some sense of normalcy, but your girl COVID is just not letting up. And the doctors have, they've warned us about this. This is what they expected and it's what happened. So 
at one point the numbers did go down so if we had that uh christmas break so thanksgiving christmas new year's holidays break surge the numbers started going down and doctors were like yay and then they started to plateau and just kind of like stay linear and the doctors were like no that's not what we want to see and now they're starting to go back up and it's just like will we ever be free from the shackles of covid and i don't think so because y'all was in miami cutting the food anyway reports came out this week that COVID was the number three cause of death in the United States last year. And that was only behind, I think, heart disease and cancer. Um, And y'all still don't want to do better. And I just don't, I can't seem to understand it. But there's still some good news on the vaccine front. President Biden announced this week that in the next three weeks, 90% of American adults should be able to get the vaccine. They should be eligible and there should be enough of vaccine for them to get it. So that's a good deal. Pfizer also announced that their vaccine is 100% effective against hospitalization and, um, you know, major sickness among ages 12 to 15 so that's good news at this point i think they're still testing children of like younger ages which they're not prone to get corona and be sick from it like that but still i know it would make a lot of parents feel a whole lot better especially with kids going back to school um they also put out information that says that their vaccine is effective against the variants, including that South African variant that was like kicking our behinds and everybody was kind of concerned about. And that they also um, noticed their vaccine efficacy lasts at least six months. Now, a lot of people are like, what? And there was mention on the news of maybe a booster shot every six months, but everybody calm down. Okay. So basically that's all the the data they have. They don't have enough data, like a year's worth of data to say, oh, well, it lasts for a year. The vaccines are so new. So uh, that's why they can only say right now at the least, six months most doctors and scientists believe it's going to be even longer than that but that's really just all the data they have right now to report off of so with that being said they are going to be seeking fda approval so i see a lot of you just want to be contrarian and just to be like there ain't no fda approved vaccines ain't none of them vaccines fda approved and that for somebody who doesn't pay attention to that stuff that can be very confusing and i just hate when y'all just say misleading stuff just to be saying it because y'all want to be contrarians but the vaccine does not have normal fda approval no but The FDA was the one who approved it for emergency use. So that means that the 
FDA took the data from the companies, looked into it, discussed it, and approved it for emergency use. But they can't say it's FDA approved just because, once again, the FDA normally tracks and looks into certain foods and vaccines and medicines and all of that for years. And unfortunately, we just didn't have the time. COVID was running up and through the whole world. Y'all wouldn't sit down talking about masks and freedoms and America. So they had to do something quick because y'all didn't care if your neighbor died or not. You couldn't wear your mask and you couldn't social distance and all of that stuff. So FDA was like, okay, sure. We see the data. We see that it's effective. We'll give you emergency use approval at this point, but bring bring back some data later so that we can look at it and we can approve it. So that's what Pfizer is pushing towards. Good for them. I think that's good news. Um, I, for one, just got my vaccine last week, my first dose. It is Pfizer. I would have taken Moderna. I probably would have taken Johnson & Johnson if that was what was available. But the side I went to is Pfizer, which I didn't mind. Like I told you guys before, I had wanted the vaccine with um, the mRNA technology, number one, just because I didn't want a vaccine that had like a weakened virus or whatnot um and so i got pfizer and i had a little soreness in the arm that was it nothing else fell off about it and then i got it on a thursday and by the next day maybe 25 hours later it was like a very like slight feeling in the arm from where i got shot and then by saturday i didn't feel anything at all so it was a breeze. Now, that second shot, I'm concerned. I'm concerned it's going to take me out because my immune system be working. A lot of times I can feel when it works. So I'm, I got concerns about that second shot. But for now, the first shot's fine. I'm not walking backwards or speaking in a different language with a different accent. As you can tell, still country me. So far, so good. So that's pretty good on the Pfizer front. We're still waiting on word from Moderna. I don't feel like it'd be much of a difference. They're very similar vaccines. Unfortunately, Johnson & Johnson's nothing wrong with that vaccine, but they did have a little mishap at one of their um, distribution centers or, or labs where they're creating the vaccine. There was an unfortunate human error and some of the vaccines were made incorrectly or they they say they did meet the quality standards of of Johnson and Johnson but I think they had the wrong ingredients don't worry none of those batches actually went out into the world if you got a Johnson and Johnson vaccine you're good if you're getting the vaccine you're good but this batch never even made it out of the warehouse but the sad part about it is it's like 15 million vaccines that are basically going to be trashed because they're ruined so that's kind of sad but I don't think it really stops anything I think we still are on track to have enough vaccines for everybody it was just really nice to have that Johnson and Johnson because number one it doesn't take as much to keep it up it can go to more rural places it's one and done especially for people that don't like shots like I know some y'all 
hate needles. You don't have the time to get off of work and have to go, you know, two times to get a shot. I understand. So that's why that Johnson and Johnson vaccine uh, is good for some people. And so that's why I, I thought it was kind of sad that um, unfortunately we couldn't get more of those out into the world. And then they ended up having to like ruin millions of doses. But I'm glad they caught it because who knows what could have happened if they didn't. So shout out to the team there in that Baltimore facility, if I'm not mistaken. And also shout out to all the people who worked really hard and were really patient and were able to get that big ship cleared out of the Suez Canal so that traffic could begin flowing through there again. Excellent teamwork. If y'all saw how that ship was stuck in that canal, you would have been concerned. It was concerning. So glad that they were able to get that uh, ship out. And unfortunately, I think they said it was still going to take like three days, maybe for the ships that had gotten backed up and stuck to get through. But I think it was Monday when it was cleared out. So they should be flowing pretty well by today. Many other ships had already started redirecting anyway. So just understand that that's probably why there'll be a hold up in some of the products that you want. That's probably why some of your goods might cost a little more. But they got that fixed sooner than later at there was a point in time when they were like, it could be days, it could be weeks. Fortunately, they got it done in a matter of days. It was stuck for five days and, and they were able to clear it out fairly soon. So good on that. Now I can just, you know, continue ordering from Amazon with no mercy on them. So good news. Some not-so-good news, however, comes at the expense of Florida Representative Matt Gates. Gates, we love to hate. He is currently under investigation by the Department of Justice um, about whether or not he had a relationship, a sexual one, with a 17-year-old young lady and if he possibly participated in sex trafficking. Now, let me clear up what that means. Apparently, if you travel, like you pay for travel with anyone that's a minor and you take them across state lines and you actually have like sex with them and you like give them gifts and money and stuff like that, that's technically in the eyes of the law trafficking so that's why he's under investigation so it was a really interesting day when this information came out because at the beginning of the day the story was being floated that matt gates was thinking about retiring early from congress and taking a role as like i guess a newscaster on newsmax which is like Fox News light, but like much less money and a little more unhinged. So it was put out there that he was floating that idea and, and thinking about retiring early. Now, I don't know too many people who were like, oh, no. 
Uh, it was a lot of good riddances uh, going out there. But then later on in the evening, the New York Times drops this bombshell article like, hey, by the way, your boy Gates is under investigation. And the people were like, what? And it became a big thing. And so then he felt like he had to definitely tweet through it and get on the internet and let y'all know what's up. So Matt Gates says that basically this was an extortion attempt on his family. You know, sometime earlier this year, they were reached out to and it was like, you need to give us $25 million. And then they immediately went to the FBI to report it and, he even went on Tucker Carlson and went so far as to say that his dad wore a wire. And that was weird because number one, he just kept offering up information that wasn't like good for him. That he probably should have kept himself like number one, if it's an FBI investigation and your dad had to wear a wiretap and it's like ongoing, you shouldn't go on national television and say that. And He also said that they were trying to say that they have some pictures of him with minors. And it was like, why would you even say that? Like, why would you, why would you go on national television and say that? Even if you say it's a lie, like, don't offer extra stuff. Like, why would you do that? Um, so the people were right confused and confused along with them was Tucker Carlson because Matt, was doing this strange thing where it's like he was trying to like loop Tucker in like into what he was he was in on and it was weird because it was like you're doing this on TV like this is probably should have been a private conversation but he was like yeah remember that time that you and your wife went to dinner with me and a young lady like they're even questioning her and Tucker was like I don't remember the event nor the context. It was just the strangest thing. Tucker came back from commercial and was like, well, that's like the weirdest interview I've ever done. But, you know, these allegations came out about him just hours before the show. And we felt like there was maybe more to the story. So we invited him on. He stopped short of saying that was a bad idea. We shouldn't have did that. But everybody knew he regretted it. It was just really weird. So um, he's under investigation. He tried to pin it on some man that is was neither with the DOJ nor was he involved in the case at the time. So the investigation actually started at the end of the previous administration. It was a Bill Barr Department of Justice investigation. A lot of people were trying to blame Biden. And I was like, what does he... He is minding his business trying to get infrastructure for the U.S. He is not worried about Matt Gates, but... You know, people don't listen to facts. So, anyways, and and Matt Gates wasn't even the subject of the investigation. It was a man named Joel Greenberg, who was a official in Florida who had ties to Matt Gates, and you know they were looking into him and what he had going on because apparently, you know, 
he had something going on with some young girls or whatnot. Um, and he was indicted last summer on sex trafficking of a child, financially supporting people in exchange for sex. And at least one of those was an underage girl. So he was like a tax collector in Seminole County in Florida. That's north of Orlando, if you know geography. Um, and he has resigned since then, but unfortunately it looks like Matt, who might have been one of his um, you know, friends or buddies or whatever, got looped into the investigation when maybe they found some information that was interesting about him. So wasn't even the subject of the investigation. Basically, I got caught up in the crosshairs, and that's just how it goes, I guess. So, that's a really strange saga of Matt Gates's uh, investigation. He is still currently actively under investigation. Like it started with the old administration, but it is an ongoing investigation. If I were he, if I were him. I would not tweet about it and maybe not go on Fox News or Newsmax or OAN and offer up more incriminating evidence that really, really makes me look guilty. Like, he also never once said, like, I didn't have a relationship with a minor. Like, I don't think that's what he said. He said something really pointed, like, I didn't travel with a 17 year old and like now this story is leaking that he has his fiance who's 28 and she's his travel buddy and it's like okay anyways um best of luck to matt gates and his endeavors um unless he was actually having sex with a minor because that's disgusting and in that case he needs to go down but it's all alleged at this point, people. So that's where we'll leave it. What's not alleged, however, is that on May 25th, 2020, Officer Derek Chauvin knelt on the neck of George Floyd. In what we thought was eight minutes and 46 seconds of torture we found out this week at the beginning of Derek Chauvin's trial for the death of George Floyd that it was actually nine minutes and 29 seconds that Derek Chauvin kneeled on the neck of George Floyd that was previously unknown unbeknownst to everyone it seems um, before the trial started, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, Benjamin Crump, and some of the family members, the news reporters and such, met and had a little press conference and knelt for 8 minutes and 46 seconds because, as you all know, that was an important time in this whole story because it was believed that that's how long he knelt on George Floyd's neck. However, it appears that maybe that's just when someone started recording. And we just, these past four weeks of the trial have been emotionally trying and exhausting. And I'm actually watching it all for the first time. I never watched the video um, when it originally happened. I just 
I just knew I, I didn't want to. I had heard what the video consists of and I just knew that I, I didn't really want to see it. But I, like so many others, actually watched the whole thing for the first time this week and multiple iterations and angles and vantage points of, you know, the moments before he died. And it's just been so tragic to watch. In the opening statements, of course, you know, the prosecution is trying to, they're trying to prove that Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. He's being charged with three different things. Second degree unintentional murder, which means he caused George Floyd's death while assaulting him. A third degree murder, which means that someone caused the death of another by perpetrating an act imminently dangerous to others and invincing a depraved mind without regard for human life. And then there's the second degree manslaughter charge, which means he was culpably negligent and took an unreasonable risk with Floyd's life. Now, so far watching the trial, I think that that second degree manslaughter is the most likely of the three. That's my personal opinion. We'll get into it. So that's what the prosecution is trying to prove. The defense is trying to paint it as George Floyd overdose on drugs and that the officers could not help George Floyd because the crowd was so unruly and dangerous that aid could not be given to George Floyd, which I feel is just insane. Given the fact that the reason the crowd was so upset to begin with is that no aid was being given to George Floyd. So that was the beginning of the first day. And um, one of the first witnesses they brought on the stand on the first day was... Jenna Scurvy, who was the 911 dispatcher who first received the call from Cup Foods about needing the police to go there because of the counterfeit bill. So she basically was questioned about her job, how it works, how dispatch works, how it appears in the system when cops get the call when fire gets the call when rescue gets the call and that would be the fire department and the emts how it looks in the system when everybody's plugged in on a call and everybody has to action what was really compelling about her testimony on that day was the fact that she was able she realized that there was an actual like surveillance video feed from cup foods and she was able to look at it kind of in between taking her normal calls and there was just a point that stood out to her so much that she felt like she had to take action she realized that she looked at the video and at this point george floyd was on the ground 
cops were kneeling on him. There were cops on his back. There was Derek Chauvin on his neck. And she said that they were there for so long that she thought the video had frozen. And she asked someone, like, is this frozen? And they were like, no, this is live. So at that point, she was like, hmm, maybe I should do something because something doesn't look right. So at that point, she called the chief of police. And I found it so interesting. That the, one of the first things she says is like, um, you know, I don't want to be a snitch, but... And I was like, it's so telling that, like, that's the culture that we're in these days is that you don't tell on the cops. Like, if you're in that, within that realm of, you know, kind of like that, that brotherhood or whatever, like, you don't tell on the cops. So to her, she was kind of like, ooh, like, you know... Maybe I should mind my business, but maybe I shouldn't. And like, I don't want to come off like a tattletale or a snitch, but I'm looking at this and it doesn't look right. And I'm thinking maybe you should know because something seems off. And I just thought that was really telling that she had to do that. But then what we learn as the trial goes on is she's not the only person that called the police on the police. So... Uh, the second witness was Donald Williams II. And oh my God, like at this point, I was like, okay, like the prosecution is not playing. Like they, they really know what they're doing with these witnesses. But also Donald Williams was just one of the best witnesses I feel like I've ever seen in a trial. And that's probably not saying much. I don't, I don't watch a lot of them, but he was just so cool, calm, and collected. So Donald Williams was on the scene. He was one of the spectators who was really concerned about what was going on with George Floyd as a MMA um, instructor and trainer. He felt like he knew what he saw was dangerous and he was attempting to intervene on George Floyd's behalf because he felt like his MMA training allowed him to see that basically the way in which Derek Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck was dangerous to him. And he was just very like cool, calm, and collected. But once again, the defense was like steadily trying to make all of these witnesses that were there out to be just angry and unruly. And there was just this wonderful part where the defense attorney is like cross-examining Donald and he's saying like, he's asking him about the things that he said during the encounter. Like he threw out some cuss words. He called the officer some names, but he asked like, did you say these things? And would you say that you're using these words because you were angry? And Donald Williams goes, no, I became more and more controlled. I stayed in my body. You're not going to paint me as angry. And that was so important because number one, we already know how black women and black men are perceived 
black women are angry black women when we show valid frustrations and black men are the scary angry black man when they show concerns so i thought it was really inspiring how he was able to keep um his cool not only on the stand but in that that time i mean he was he used some a little bit of strong language but he didn't get physical at any point in time, even though he knew that he could, even though he knew that he had the training where he probably could have had to hand combat. He probably could have took those guys out. So I thought he was a great witness. It was very compelling to watch him, you know, and basically, you know, when the prosecution asked like, you know, why did you call the cops? He kept saying, I called the cops on the cops. And they were like, well, why did you do that? And he was like, because I believe I had just witnessed a, a murder, which was the general consensus from that point on from most of the witnesses. Dare I say all. Donald Williams' testimony went into the second day. So he started at the end of the first day. He was the first witness on the stand on the second day. And then after him, all we got was audio because... The next four witnesses were minors at the time. The first witness, Darnella, I think was her name, is currently 18, just turned 18, was 17 at the time. So they gave her name, but they did not put her on video. And just, just another heartbreaking day because, like I said, the next four witnesses were children and... You can just tell how traumatizing the event was for them. Darnella said at the end of her testimony, like, there's nights where she just, she can't sleep and she stays up apologizing and apologizing to George Floyd because she didn't do more. But she ended it with, but it's not about what I should have done. It's about what he should have done. Talking about Derek Chauvin. They got her off that stand real quick after she said that. <laughs> but I was just like, this is, it's so profound. Like, this is a young girl. She's in high school. And she shouldn't have to witness that. And then as upset I was about her, the next person on the stand was her cousin. Her nine-year-old cousin, who will be 10 next week, I think they said. And it was just like... (sighs) And fortunately, they didn't keep her on the stand for long. She also wasn't cross-examined by the defense. And I was like, thank God, because just listening to her talk was so heartbreaking. Like, Essentially, these two cousins had walked to the store. The young girl wanted to get some snacks. Her cousin walked with her to the store she saw what was going on like as they walked up and so she kind of sent her younger cousin into the store and then she continued to watch what was happening and she is the one who recorded and so she is the one who got that viral eight minute and 46 second video and that's probably why we all thought that's how long it was because she as she walked up, they were already on him. Like, Derek was already kneeling on his neck at that point. So, 
she saw something that she thought wasn't right and she started recording. And then the next two minors were two young ladies who weren't as vocal um, in the, you know, the crowd, but had walked up, wanted to get like an ox cord or something from the store, had drove up. One friend was like, stay in the car, I'll get it, don't worry. But then she noticed what was going on and she kind of got sucked into it and was like, hey, like, let me get your phone so I can record. Like, that's... (laughs) That's how bad it it looked. Like, that's how bad the optics were that as it happened, people just kind of had to stop and stare and record so there would be an actual record of what happened. So there would be no hearsay. I also forgot to mention really quick, she wasn't on the stand for long, but there was a young lady who worked across the street at the Speedway, I think it's a gas station, who had already also come out and took a few recordings of her, her own because she felt like the cops are always messing with somebody in the neighborhood. So she got a few of her own recordings before she went back to work. Like I said, she wasn't on the stand for long. She didn't really offer much as far as testimony only to say that like you know i saw it from across the street and i also thought it looked strange so i recorded a few videos myself um and then the second day the last witness was genevieve hansen genevieve was the emt I'm sorry, she was an EMT, but at this point she was fire. She was a firefighter and she was actually off duty and she happened to be out in her neighborhood and she came across the scene and she also stopped. And um, she was another one of those witnesses where her testimony was at the end of the day. So it bled over to the second day. What I thought was interesting from the first day was that Genevieve made it very clear that she came up on the scene as a off-duty firefighter and she saw what was happening and it was very concerning to her and she identified herself verbally as a firefighter and she was like, listen, I see what you're doing, but you need to check his pulse. Like, we need to check for vitals. Like we need to render him some aid and she was denied. And that was kind of like the most compelling thing about her testimony was the fact that she was begging and pleading with them to allow her to render aid to George Floyd, who she and other witnesses had described as just watching him fade away. So, you know, she's growing more upset and concerned because he's fading away and she has skills that could help save his life and she's being told she can't help. At one point, Officer Tao was the one officer who wasn't physically restraining George Floyd. He was more so kind of like standing between the police officers and the crowd and making comments like don't do drugs and this is why you don't do drugs kids and when she was like hey like I'm a firefighter I can help and all this and the third he said something 
to the effect of like if you are a firefighter then you know better or something like that it was just i was just like the restraint that these people showed but to also try to vocalize like you need somebody you see somebody that needs help and you just want the police officers to lit up you just want the police officer to allow you to help and they're ignoring you and you feel so helpless like that's what all of the witnesses expressed so unfortunately there was a moment when um it was the first day it was a long day um Genevieve had been questioned by the prosecution and at that point the defense was questioning her and I noticed she started getting a little testy and I understood because the defense lawyer was kind of trying to like downplay her training like her EMT training and like you know once again the defense is trying to paint a picture that the crowd was unruly what were the cops to do and you know you show up and you say that you're a firefighter off duty but like are you even trained for this? Like he was, it was like he was trying to kind of downplay her credentials. And I think she felt annoyed by that. And I was like, as she should. And so she got a little combative with the defense. And at the end, the judge kind of like chastised her and told her she shouldn't argue with the defense and she shouldn't argue with the court. Because I think at one point the defense asked her a question and she answered it because she said originally in her statement that George Floyd was like small and frail. And she was like, yeah, I, I did say that because at that point I only saw him laying under the weight of three men. Um, and she kind of stopped and then she was like, but you know, now I know that not to be true. For some reason the judge like didn't like that she finished the answer and he told her like I'm the one who determines when you're done answering a question it was just really like macho for no reason um but anyways he was like I'll see you tomorrow at nine she was like hi and uh they came back and finished her testimony I defense didn't really cross-examine her a lot she really wasn't there for a long amount of time I think she had done what she needed to do she had basically said, listen, I tried to offer help. They told me I couldn't help. That man didn't have to die, but it's the choice they decided to make. So this is day three now of the trial. Um, at this point, we, after Genevieve Hansen, we hear the testimony of the, oh my God, all of these young kids. So... We hear the testimony of the young employee at Cup Foods um, who was the one who received that counterfeit bill and unfortunately told his manager about it. So the prosecution shows us some video and this is the very first time we see any video of what George Floyd was like before the encounter with the cops. So we see George Floyd in the store and, you know, the young guy, his name is Chris Martin. 
So young Chris Martin, he's like, you know, I saw him in the store. And the first thing I noticed about him was how big he was. You know, I asked him if he played baseball. He said no. Football was his thing. But I noticed it kind of took him a long time to answer. From that, I felt like he might have been high on something. Like on some kind of substances. But once again, he was able to talk, interact. He was chilling. Everybody was in the store chilling. And you see this under surveillance. Like, he's around. He's dancing a little bit, you know. I get, I'm assuming to music or maybe whatever's going on in his head. I do that all the time, so I can't judge. But, you know, he was not bothering anyone. There were young people in the store, adults, you know, people. He stood where he was. People kind of walked around him. Like, you know, not a threat at all. Unfortunately, George Floyd wanted a pack of cigarettes. The clerk went to the cigarette aisle of the store because the store is kind of broken down in different ways. I think he was actually, he had dropped off maybe a phone to get it fixed. Um, So while he was waiting on his phone, he wanted to get a pack of cigarettes. When he purchased cigarettes, the bill he used was a counterfeit. Now, the witness... Chris Martin feels like George didn't know that the bill was counterfeit. Now, we also find out that George was actually at the store with another gentleman and a woman. They were in the car. Now, Chris's testimony states that the other gentleman that George Floyd was with had actually come into the store earlier and had paid tried to pay with a counterfeit bill and he said he felt that the friend was kind of trying to scheme but at this separate time in which George tried to use a counterfeit bill to pay he felt like George didn't know it was a counterfeit and he allowed like George to like leave out of the store and get to his car and everything. And he's, you know, you can see him on the video kind of looking at the bill like, Hmm. Um, maybe that's not real. And at a certain point he was going to let it slide. Uh, the policy in the store. And a lot of you guys on the internet said that this is illegal and I'm, I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know. But the store policy is that if you accept a counterfeit bill, you have to pay for that bill out of your, your pocket. So basically, the young man saw the bill and was going to let it slide. But then he thought about how he'd have to pay the $20. So he just mentioned it to his manager. Now, this is the issue that I and a lot of people on the internet had. He tells his manager, hey, like, this bill's fake. Number one, I don't even know why they don't have, like, one of those pins. It seemed like they didn't have that. It seemed like he was like, I think this is fake. He took it to the manager and the manager goes, go out to the car because George Floyd goes and gets in the car. He's not running off. He's not trying to escape 
the scene, you know, he's hanging out in the car. Like I said, I think he had, there's a phone part in the store. So I think he was trying to get his phone fixed. So either way, he was waiting. He tells Chris Martin to go out to the car and ask George to come back inside so they can talk to him. Chris goes out with an associate. He talks to George from the passenger side. George was on the driver's side, but that side was on the street. There was traffic. He talked to him and his passengers from the passenger side, but he said he mostly communicated with the guy who was on the passenger side, the one that he had earlier felt was trying to scheme. And George was in the driver's seat kind of, I guess, like shocked that, this was happening to him. He kind of was like, why is this happening to me um, over that counterfeit bill? But at the end of that conversation, no one agreed to go inside. So Chris Martin and his associate went back inside and the manager again sent these young kids. At this point, Chris Martin, I believe is 18, sent these young men out again um, to the car to talk to them. At this point, it was two other associates and Chris. One guy actually did the talking. Apparently, you know, Chris mentions to the passenger, that, like, you know, you try to pay with a counterfeit bill earlier. And, the, and apparently the passenger was like, oh, no, like, you put me on the game then. Like, I took it back. It's not a big deal. Ripped up the fake bill or whatnot to say, like, you know, I'm not trying to scheme or whatever. But once again... After the end of that conversation, they didn't agree to go back in the store. So at this point, Chris Martin and his associates go back in the store. And at this point, Chris is like, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll pay for it. Like, I'll just pay for it out of my tab. But the manager was like, no, we have to call the cops. And I was just like... I guess the manager was trying to make a point. And once again, neither Chris nor the manager could have known what was going to happen when the police came. But it was just like seeing so many ways that the story went south when I feel like it didn't have to. And it's now it's unfortunate because you have a young guy like Chris who actually lived lives above Cup Foods and like was like I had to stop working there because I was concerned about my safety. He's a young guy who now has is concerned about his safety but also feels the guilt of thinking like if I never would have even taken that bill. Like, if I'd have just looked at it first and it would have been like, mm, this isn't real, and gave it back to him, like, what would have happened? Would he still be alive today? And I just thought it was so heartbreaking. Once again, not just him, but all of these witnesses that had to see this, had to be traumatized by the actions of Derek Chauvin, which... After Chris, we hear from an older gentleman, Charles McMillan, who was actually there. He just lived in the neighborhood. He 
saw what was going on, he figured he, you know, stop and try to calm the situation down because George Floyd was obviously upset. Like he wasn't fighting and like trying to take the officers out, but was obviously upset because not only did they put him in handcuffs and try to squeeze him in the back of a police truck, but when they got on the scene, they pointed a gun at him. So you can imagine at this point, he's most likely terrified. So like I said, Charles McMillan, just a guy in the community who admitted he's nosy, stopped and was just trying to help George Floyd out. And they actually played the, they played the body cam footage from the cops. Uh, that we had not previously seen. And that's when we hear George Floyd like yelling for his mama. And Charles broke down on the stand. It was just terrible sights. Like sobbing and weeping. Because he's like, I don't have a mom either. And like I, I, I identify. And it was just like, it was just so terrible. Like it's just been an exhausting week already. But um it was really terrible, but what was important about Charles McMillan is that he had actually met Derek Chauvin about five days prior. I guess he'd like saw him patrolling the area or whatever, and they had a conversation, and he says he remembers telling Derek Chauvin, you be safe so you can get back to your family, but you allow somebody else to get back to theirs and when it was all said and done because he stayed the whole time even when they loaded um george floyd into the ambulance he said to Derek chauvin like i told you to be safe so you can make it home to your family and others can make it to theirs but like what I witnessed from you just now, like, I can't respect your maggot in my eyes. And, oh, my God, it was just, it was just so tough because Derek Chauvin just basically killed a man. And his demeanor was so cool and calm. And he was trying to justify it. Like, he's a, he was like, well, he's a sizable guy. So... You know, basically like had to do what I had to do. And it was just like so disgusting because this man was so chill and just left a wake of like devastation in his path due to his actions. Young children who are traumatized, who can't sleep at night. Like... But he was like cool and calm and collected about it. It was just, it was just really crazy to to hear how calm he was in the situation. Which once again makes it so frustrating that the defense is trying to paint the crowd as this angry mob with like pitchforks and fire, and they're like gonna harm the police Derek Chauvin was cool as a cucumber the whole time hand in his pocket shades on his head 
not not a worry, not a care in the world. We also hear from the body camera footage of one of the officers that was on the back of George Floyd who said, hey, like, should we turn him over, you know, on his side? And Chauvin's like, no, mm-mm. Ambulance is coming. They'll deal with it. Like, this man is dying or dead at this point in your care. Because you won't let up. And even when someone says to you, like, you know, maybe maybe we should turn him over. When you, one of your colleagues says, maybe we should, you know, turn him over on his side. You're like, mm-mm. I'm, I'm good. I can stay on this knee forever. It's only been about 10 minutes. Like, the evidence is like insane against this guy. Insane. Um, For day three, they brought another witness out. He wasn't on the stand long. He was a guy who kind of had pulled up and first noticed how aggressive the cops were. Um, with George Floyd and he said he recorded but then he stopped because he didn't want any trouble with the police and black people we know what that means not like oh they might give you a ticket it's like oh you might get arrested too and also end up dead in some strange circumstances so he didn't keep recording he just uh kind of went on about his day I don't think he stayed the whole time uh he and his wife I think were there and so he was probably like I just want to get out of here uh sooner than later um they did have one more um witness on the stand he was more of like a a foundational witness to explain the like surveillance videos and time stamps and all of that um I'm sure that added something important, but it would didn't really stand out to me uh, as I viewed it. So that was day three. Day four was today. We began with George Floyd's girlfriend, Courtney. That's how she pronounced it, Courtney. And there is an extra E in her name, uh, Ross and she explained honestly, truly, how she and jo- uh, George Floyd have both dealt with opioid use. And um, she suspected around the time that he passed that he might have been uh, back into using. Apparently, like many of Americans, uh, he became addicted because of like an injury he had. Apparently, like a neck like a neck, shoulder, back type thing that would bother him. So he took opioids for it and ended up getting hooked. And that's unfortunately like a real story for so many Americans. I know the reason why the prosecution did it. Um, The defense is once again going to try to make it seem like George Floyd overdosed that was the cause of his death um and so i'm sure the prosecution brought her out to talk about their drug use because they don't want the defense to be bringing up anything new by the time uh it's their turn to start calling witnesses they want the jurors to have heard 
everything there probably is to know about Floyd that makes sense for this case. So I'm sure that's why they brought her up and she was honest. She talked about it. Um, and so now we know. And to be quite honest, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if he was high when he got killed. What matters is he got killed. But yeah, uh, that's why I'm at home and not in the courtroom because I don't have patience. But she was, once again, very emotional, of course, as to be expected. And then they brought to the stand the EMTs that arrived, the fire chief who arrived, actually arrived to the scene and the EMT had already put him in the stretcher and had kind of drove off. Now, once again, the EMT was honest. He was like, I just kind of knew that it was going to be labor intensive and I'm in the middle of the road. So I just kind of like drove off and pulled over because there was like a lot going on in that scene. And just so we could get somewhere quiet so we could focus because this man at this point isn't breathing. So he was like, we pulled down the road to work on him. At that point, fire and rescue had gotten there, but EMTs were gone. Um, so then it took them a few minutes to figure out over their radio. They got, you know, the word that like, this is where the EMT were. So they went there. Um, apparently the fire chief says when he first got there, he didn't notice Genevieve was there. Uh, he kind of walked past her. He didn't recognize her at first. But um, after he came out of the store, he was able to talk to her. She kind of went through what was going on. She was visibly upset and concerned. So he says that, you know, they drove up to the ambulance. He started helping. He sent uh, his two other guys in the fire truck back to talk to Genevieve just because of how upset she was. After they got to the scene and they saw that it looked like this man was dead, like he had no heart function, the fire chief was like, okay, maybe you two need to go and talk to Genevieve and like check on her and see what's going on. So they did that. He rode to the hospital with the EMTs and then his two fire people met him at the hospital. At that point, I think we all know what happened. Like, they did try to revive him. They were unsuccessful. At this point, also, the chief of police comes into play. He, of course, was alerted. He makes his way to Cup Foods. He discusses what happened with the officers. And then he also goes to the hospital to see if he can, you know, get a word on George Floyd. At the time he got to the off the hospital, he asked the nurse what was going on. The nurse said he's in very bad shape is what he said. So he doesn't know him to be dead until he's fully pronounced dead. Whereas those who had got on the scene had noticed he was already unresponsive and ENT and fire and, you know, the other guys who have been trying to revive him know that he doesn't have any heart function. So he was the last witness on the stand today. 
uh, there was some procedural questions going back and forth about um, if he was technically a foundational witness as it pertains to force. Um, there was a lot of focus on force and what's necessary and in what ways would you divert your attention if you know there was a threat once again the defense was trying to make it seem like the darn crowd was going to set Derek Chauvin aflame like I was getting so frustrated because at a certain point, the defense lawyer asked the chief of police, like, well, what if you're, like, in a shootout and somebody drops due to cardiac arrest, but there's still an active threat? And it's like, nobody in the crowd was shooting? The only reason the crowd was upset is because a police officer is killing a man in front of them. And they're getting even more upset because that man is showing no remorse. No care. And there's someone who's on the sidelines saying, let me render aid. And he's like, no, thanks, ma'am. Like, that's why they're upset. Maybe if you would have stopped to render aid like they were asking, they wouldn't have been so upset. It's like, read the room. So frustrating. It's And I just can't imagine what it was like to be there. Like, Donald Williams, the MMA fighter trainer, was like, I called the police on the police because I felt like even though I was there looking at these men, talking to these men, I felt no human connection. I wasn't being heard. And that's why I called the police on the police. But the defense attorney, and I understand that's his job. He's trying to get his client off. He's not doing that great of a job so far, but he's trying to get his client off. And I totally understand. But painting the crowd as this angry mob is just, listen, I know they was cussing. I, they were cussing. They was cussing them officers slam out. I know. But... I think that's the least of what they could have done as they literally sat and watched what they perceived to be a murder. And perception is reality. That's the one thing I learned from my little sociology degree. Perception is reality. And when most of the people on the street that have congregated are telling you that they felt like they were watching a man being killed right before their eyes. I think the least of your worries is how upset they were. Like it was lit it was literally warranted. But the force used against George Floyd was not. 
That's the moral to the story. He was down on the ground. He was unconscious for at least five of the minutes in which Officer Chauvin, ex-Officer Chauvin, was kneeling on his neck. Like, the force wasn't necessary. So we're going to keep watching this trial because it's easy to see all of that all of the videos and all of the testimonies and think, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Like, there's no way, but this is America. And we know how it goes. We know how it goes and we've seen it happen before. It feels like impeachment all over again where you know that the prosecutors and the impeachment man- managers are making a super awesome case. But if people are already dead set in their thoughts, then it doesn't make any difference. So I want to have hope. I, I really do. But I, I'm, I'm black in America, so I, I have to remain skeptic. So... I don't know how long this trial is going to last. I'm going to try to watch every day. Um, Like I said, it's it's been... I try to like detach while I watch it and also do other things because it's just very exhausting Um, to go from not even having seen the video once to having to see it over and over in like different angles and vantage points and stop and break down what you see and this that, and the other it's just um it's been kind of hard so i'm gonna try to continue to watch it and um we'll see how it goes uh fingers crossed but mm, get my hopes up and i want to thank you guys once again for joining me this week on did you hear the news some positive black excellence my little baby cousin has recorded his first song um as a way to just get his voice out there as someone who had kind of stifled himself in his light he wanted to do something to let his light shine and in this day and time I have to support and I have to stand because as you see like the world will want to snuff our lights out so I'm going to give you guys a little preview of my cousin's song The New Me by Mezariah You can't talk to me, you don't know my name You can't pressure me, you can't give up my game And I'm all on my own, yeah I'm all in my zone God made me choose He said that you would lose You was terminal to me, now I'm cancer
cancer free You made a terminal for me, now I fly for free That's the airport, try to rob my love with the Air Force All black, which is trying to get me in the all black Talk behind my back, now look how I fall back Yes, Timber, Justin, how I fall back Didn't know my worth, I'm a masterpiece About to count my millions, now I'm masterpiece I forgive you, now look how I masterpiece I'm number one, you come after me You my bitch now, so go and dance for me Y'all some bird niggas, y'all got them happy feet Go make them bands for me and pay me back next week I got the power now, nigga, I'm the principal Demi dirty, I ain't mad, it's the principal Y'all come second to me now, assistant principal Tryna tie old bonds, tryna bury me Then I run home before they bury me That's a home run, gotta think fast, they got more guns Spirit filled with ammo, I got real guns Damn son, spirit got a whole lot of choppers Man, I see a whole lot of siders Cause y'all be babies in that other world A whole lot of diapers when y'all crawl, y'all be snakes Yeah, a whole lot of vipers, yeah, I'm one in Christ Got a whole lot of brothers, I was raised by a village Got a whole lot of mothers Don't trust too many people, that's my recipe Really don't want nobody sitting next to me Cause they cheer, got the spirit of jealousy Cause they be sitting there wanting my destiny Then they see my light and be like, that's for me Try to steal my peace and be like, that's for free You can't talk to me you don't know my name You can't pressure me You can't give up my game And I'm all on my own Yeah, I'm all in my zone God made me choose He said that you would lose You can't talk to me You don't know my name You can't pressure me You can't give up my game And I'm all on my own And I'm all in my zone God made me choose He said that you would